Lord, we do thank you this morning for all of your blessings upon our church and upon us. We thank you for giving us the word. We thank you for the faithful men who have preached it and led the church over the decades. We're thankful for the families, the men and women, and even children who have stood strong in the faith and even died for it at times. Help us to learn from them. Help us to learn the history of their story and also the theological controversies and theological positions that have come about in church history. Thank you for preserving this knowledge and helping us, Lord, uh, to learn it and to study it today. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay, we're talking about amillennialism. Amillennialism. We love our amillennial brothers. Um, I got lots of amillennialists on my bookshelf and my study. Most Presbyterians fall into this camp. Some are post-mill. And there's even some pre-mill like James Boyce. This is not a. Uh, this is not like the Pelagian controversy. That was a matter of the gospel. That was a matter of who is saved and who's not. We're talking about unbelievers versus believers there. Uh, this is more of a viewpoint on what the Bible says about end times. And so we just want to look at how these two views were developed in the early church. Now, sometimes when we talk about theology, the word developed sounds strange. What do you mean developed? Isn't the Bible the Bible? It's always been the Bible. True, but men have to study it and put these passages together. There's not a chapter that you turn to that says, here is all the end time stuff in one chapter and you don't have to look anywhere else. That's not how theology is done. You look all over the Bible and you study it and you put the parts together and you think about what they mean and that's doing theology. What does the whole Bible say about this topic? And so some different views have come about as men have looked at various ways to interpret Scripture. And really this comes down to more of a hermeneutic divide than it does, oh, I'm all-mill, you're pre-mill, let's divide. It's not like that. It's not like you pick your favorite. It's not supposed to be like that. Now, sometimes we do that. It's not pick your favorite preacher and follow what he says. It's really about how we're going to interpret Scripture. So instead of making it a, a theology class, I'm just going to skim real quick through some things we covered last week. The all-millennial position believes that the thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20, this is real basic, right, 30,000 feet kind of view here. They believe that Revelation 20, the thousand years specifically mentioned there, is not a specific period between Christ's first and second coming. So many times they would say that the kingdom is now. The kingdom is during this time of the church age. The pre-mill position is that Christ will come back and then set up a literal thousand years. Now there's many different nuances and various views of the millennial reign amongst pre-mills. But generally, pre is Christ is coming back before pre-millennialism. That's the main concept. By the way, Spurgeon was a pre-millennial, Derek. I don't know if he says that in that book, though. Post-millennialism is generally a view that Christ will come back following some period of the millennium, either a thousand-year reign or sometimes it's interpreted to be longer or different. Various views in all of these. Really, the pre-mill and post-mill have lots of nuances, depending on who you talk to. All-mill is pretty standard. All just means no. So all, privative, right? atheist, no God. All-mill, no millennium. Pre-mill, Christ comes back, then the millennium. Post-mill, millennium, then Christ comes post, after. All right, so let's just run quickly through why does it matter? Well, as I said, hermeneutics, it matters for hermeneutical thought, how are we going to interpret the Bible? A premillennialist defend their position because they're convinced 
that it alone maintains a consistently literal hermeneutic, taking into account authorial intent within the flow of God's progressive revelation. So remember, this class is premillennial perspective. That's what we teach here. That's what the elders hold. This doesn't mean other people aren't believers. It just means we're going to teach this perspective and interact with other perspectives as we go. So premillennialists are deeply concerned about the arbitrariness of what's called an allegorical hermeneutic. Also hope premillennialists further defend their position because they believe that the trustworthiness of God's promises is at stake. So I'm kind of going quick through this, not, not to brush it aside, but because this is more of the theological study today that we might do of this topic, and we want to get to some of the church history on this. So the key question, if God did not communicate his promises to Old Testament saints clearly, or if he led them to believe something about their future that was not entirely accurate, then what confidence can New Testament saints have in their understanding of the New Testament promise God has given to the church? So the question simply is, the promises about a coming kingdom in the Old Testament, what, what do those describe? How are we to interpret them? Paul Benware, who's written a book on the different views of the end times, says a literal approach to the prophetic scriptures leads one to believe that the promises made to Israel have not been fulfilled in the past and are not being fulfilled today. This mandates that they be fulfilled sometime in the future to the nation Israel. That's going to come up in the sermon today as Paul says he's taking the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Greek. I'm going to skip some of these as we don't always need to cover all these quotes. But So why do we study the history of how an opposing view, if you don't hold this all-millennial view, why study what it is that they believe? Well, we should study positions, important positions in the church, particularly if, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to know what's a position that we would divide over and say the person's an unbeliever. If somebody comes and say, It says to us, uh, I'm saved by my works. Well, we're probably not going to call them a brother in Christ once we dig in and understand what they're saying. But more than likely, that's that's an unbeliever. If somebody says to you, hey, I'm an I'm a uh, amillennialist, we're not going to divide and say they're they're an unbeliever. They might be at shepherd's conference with us. They might have a meal with us. Why study an opposing view to understand what they're saying and how they got there? We should do the same for whatever view that we hold. So as a premillennialist, why, why should we study the history of all millennialism? Because it's important in defending one's own position, you need to, to know uh, the opposing position. If an all millennialism does not represent the eschatology of the biblical authors, as we would contend, then from where did the millennialism arise? So let's look through the early church, just the early church. Now, when we say the early church believes something, that's not the end of the discussion, right? There are people in the early church that were Pelagians. That doesn't mean we have proof that Pelagianism is real. We just want to look at what they believed. What the scripture says is a better argument always. But church history can help us understand how they got there. And sometimes they can give arguments to back up a position that we are holding. They help us to understand what the scriptures say. So in early patristic writings, pre-mill is the overwhelming view. This is generally agreed upon by all the scholars who studied this. Um, the most striking point in the eschatology, this is Philip Schaff. Philip Schaff was a universalist. The thing about Philip Schaff, and universalism is when you believe everybody's going to heaven. He had some strange views in the 1800s. But the thing that Philip Schaff did was comb back through all the patristic writings and put them together in multiple volumes. 
So you can go, well, they're out of print right now, but there's a half-price books here in San Antonio that has the Nicene Fathers and the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And it's a volume of seven hardbound books. And then there's another set. So there's about 15 or 16 of this. So here's what he said. The most striking point in the eschatology of the Anti-Nicene Age, that's before Nicaea, is the prominent Kiliism. So Kili is Greek for a thousand. So this is a term the early church used for the pre-millennial position, the thousand-year reign, Kiliism or millenarianism. That is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. That was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion. So they didn't say this is a test to whether you're a believer or not. This is the test of to see if you're truly saved. It's not like the doctrine of Christ. Not like the doctrine of Scripture. That's why you don't see it in any of the early creeds and confessions. Even the Reformation confessions did not say you must believe a certain end times view. But he says, It was not the doctrine of the church embodying any creed or form of devotion, but a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers Barnabas, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Methodius, and Lactantius. So the earliest outside of the apostles that we have mentioning this premillennial view is a guy named Papias or Papias. His writings are gone, but they're carried on through others who wrote about what he said. So we have to trust them somewhat. But you remember a few months back we studied Papias and Eusebius much later writes a history book of the early church and he quotes Papias and sort of makes fun of him here. He said regarding Papias, Papias who is now mentioned by us affirms that he received the sayings of the apostles from those who accompanied them, and he moreover asserts that he heard in person Aristion and Presbyter John. That's John who wrote the Gospel of John. So remember, Papias was a disciple of the Apostle John. Accordingly, he mentions them frequently by name, and his writings give their traditions. Amongst these, he says that there will be a millennium after the resurrection from the dead, when the personal reign of Christ will be established on the earth. So I don't have the quote where he makes fun of him, but it might come up later. Um, Eusebius doesn't like that view and sort of laughs at it by the 300s. Justin Martyr, I admitted to you formally that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place, as you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead in a thousand years in Jerusalem which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged. The prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others declare. So he's saying, look, there's different different thoughts on the end times, even in Justin Martyr's day. But he says a predominant view, or the predominant view, is this idea that there will be a thousand years, and Jerusalem will be the, the capital of the world during that thousand-year reign. Irenaeus, quote from his works, he says, When this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months. So now we're getting more into the tribulation. That's not directly attached to a premillennial view. Premillennial just means Christ comes back, there's a thousand year reign. Now then there are other doctrines that people debate on, like the tribulation. What is it? How long does it last? The rapture and things like that. But here's Irenaeus already speaking of the tribulation. He says, Antichrist shall have devastated things in this world. He will reign for three years and six months. And sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, talking about the Antichrist, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. 
So not necessarily uh, a thousand years mentioned, but he's just saying, look, there's going to be a tribulation time and then the kingdom will be set up when Christ comes back. Here's Tertullian. Tertullian. These are all men that we looked at um, a few months back. If you weren't in the class, then these should be online when we cover these guys. And I'm trying to put the slides up too, or at least a PDF. I'm not sure if they're up on the site, but hopefully they will be. In the Revelation of John. So here's Tertullian, 200s roughly. He says, in the book of Revelation, again, the order of these times is spread out to view. Noting that after the casting of the devil into the bottomless pit for a while, the blessed prerogative of the first resurrection may be ordained from the throne. So he says, look, there's a first resurrection. Then again, after the consignment of him, the devil to the fire, that the judgment of the final and universal resurrection may be determined out of the books. So if you read Revelation 20, he's just saying, look, the beginning, there's a resurrection, then a thousand year reign. Then there's another resurrection of the unbelievers. Tertullian notes that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years. So I'm just showing some quotes roughly of what these guys said that indicate a premillennial stance. Lactantius, therefore, peace being made and every evil suppressed, that righteous king and conqueror will institute a great judgment on the earth respecting the living and the dead and will deliver all the nations into subjection to the righteous who are alive and will raise the righteous dead to eternal life and will himself reign with them on the earth and will build the holy city and this kingdom of the righteous shall be for a thousand years. So Lactantius, we mentioned very briefly, uh, this is a guy who lived 240 to 320, wrote some books on the Christian faith. So here's the Master Seminary Journal just summarizing. A cursory examination of the early church fathers revealed that they were predominantly premillennialists or Kilius. Doesn't mean every single person. You can't get Christians to agree on most things outside of the, the gospel and you know basics of the faith these days. That's why there's different churches, different denominations, different beliefs. But predominantly premillennialists or Kilius, clear examples, and, and then they go through some of the ones we just listed. They make this understanding impossible to challenge successfully. So people might say that wasn't the predominant view. Sometimes they'll say, well, it's not, you know, the rapture and it's not all that. They're not saying that here. They're just saying the thousand year reign after Christ comes back. That's premillennialism at its basic. So the question, if all mill was not taught by the Old Testament prophets, I would argue, or Christ or the New Testament apostles, and if pre-mill was the majority view of the early church. We need to think about and study the history of all millennialism. Where did it come from? How did it become the majority view? And it did become the majority view in the Middle Ages. It's still sometimes, depending on what group of Christians you're around, right? In the Reformed world, uh, the all-millennial view is often a majority view even today. So how did it become that during the Middle Ages? So let's look at some things. Before the Reformation, all millennialism developed due to four historical factors. Now, all mills don't like the title of number one. And that's fine. You can change it to something else. But replacement theology, number one. Number two, allegorical hermeneutics. Number three, and I'll show you this from Augustine, an aversion to supposed sensuality and medieval confirmation. So this isn't the reformers' fault. This isn't any one man in church history. Maybe we can blame Augustine and we'll talk about him. Augustine has good theology. He has bad theology. And then there's just some, somewhere in between, things we could argue with when it comes to Augustine. So number one, what is this idea of replacement theology or more technical supersessionism? 
It teaches that the church has replaced or superseded the Jews as the true people of God. So whatever you want to call it, supersessionism, replacement theology, or just that the church has replaced Israel. Alistair McGrath explains it this way. And I don't think Alistair McGrath is pre-mill. In fact, I think he's a liberal Anglican, but that's neither here nor there. The idea that the church is a spiritual society which replaces Israel as the people of God in the world. In the early church history, replacement theology began to develop as animosity between Jews and Christians grew more intense. So here's Michael Vlock in his book on replacement theology, or has the church replaced Israel? As Jewish animosity towards Christians continued, and it became increasingly clear that the Jews would not believe in Christ, many Christians began to view the Jews as their enemies. And we start to see this even in Justin Martyr's time. In addition to its anti-Jewish stance, the predominantly Gentile church continued with his insistence that the Jews had been rejected by God and that the church was now the true Israel. For example, the epistle of Barnabas states that the new covenant was never intended for Israel. Instead, it was intended for the church, the true inheritor of the promise through Christ. So the groundwork there, we already probably the earliest document is the epistle of Barnabas. By the way, we're going to see this in Luther come out. Not so much in Calvin, but Luther, for all the good that he wrote and talked about, In his life, he developed a real hatred for the Jews, and he wrote whole works against them. And this isn't, when I say hatred, I don't mean that he had a different view on the end times. He literally wanted them to be punished, wanted them to be harmed. He didn't start out that way in his ministry after he was saved, but he got more and more aggravated at them as time went on. The groundwork for this is found in the Epistle of Barnabas around A.D. 130. On the one hand, Barnabas sounds like he's premillennialist when discussing Daniel's visions and the future of world history. But in that, he contributes to what later would become amillennialism in two important ways. He says in his book, The Epistle of Barnabas, this is not Barnabas in the Bible, right? This is a guy who calls himself Barnabas later. He says it teaches that the, the church has replaced Israel as the inheritor of Old Testament promises. And he makes use of an allegorical hermeneutics, which the Christians of Alexandria, remember, inherited from the Jews. So it was not just a Christian invention, but the Jews, like Philo, the the great philosopher there in Alexandria, he started to say that the Old Testament shouldn't be interpreted literally. And of course, the pagans loved that. They didn't interpret most things literally. By then, they even looked at the Iliad and the Odyssey as not actual literal, a literal text. So Philo picks some of this up in Alexandria, and then he carries that forward, and the Epistle of Barnabas was probably written from there. And so the Greek philosophers also loved to talk about an allegorical hermeneutic. So Barnabas's replacement theology would later come to characterize other church fathers, even those who held to a premillennial view. So you can be premillennial and still have a replacement theology. Those don't necessarily cancel each other out. I think scripturally, I would argue that they do, but these early church fathers didn't necessarily pick one or the other. Justin Martyr told Trypho the Jew. So this is Justin Martyr's writings against Trypho. He said, We who have been quarried out from the bowels of Christ are the true Israelite race. And then he said, The true spiritual Israel and descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham are we who have been led to God through this crucified Christ. So the replacement theology of this era was then undergirded by two things. They said, this proves that the church has replaced Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, 
and the final fall of the nation of Israel. So look, Israel's not around anymore. And then the rise of Constantine and the establishment of a Christian kingdom on the earth. So today, we we like to separate government from our church, from our faith, and that's a good thing. We don't want the government messing with the church. But back then, remember, when we studied Constantine, Christians were very excited. This is their golden age. This is their time to have freedom to worship and have a Christian in the power, in in the office of the emperor. Barnabas and Justin Martyr and others, not not the real Barnabas, the guy who wrote the epistle Barnabas, are saying, look, this is proof. This is providential proof that Paul has, not Paul, Paul addresses this argument, that God has rejected Israel. And he has rejected them when it comes to salvation if they don't believe in Christ. But this is not a, a salvation necessarily that we're talking about. This is just more of a national Israel and the promises made to them in the Old Testament. So let's talk about Augustine. So we come to Augustine in the 4th century. And so this idea that the church has replaced Israel is becoming well, well entrenched. It's already there. And he doesn't see a prophetic future for the Jews. He explained a different purpose for God's preservation of them. So here's Vlock. The Jews, according to Augustine, shielded Christians from accusations that Christians invented Old Testament prophecies that pointed to Jesus. Thus, the existence of non-Christian Jews was not a problem, but an essential testimony to the truth of Christianity. So Augustine is basically starting to think about, okay, what does the end times have to do with the Jews and, and the promises made in the Old Testament? So that's where we get more into allegorical hermeneutics. So we add in the second factor that I mentioned. We already noted that Barnabas is starting to adopt some of that. And it's, it's clear to see if you read the epistle of Barnabas that it's allegorical. And then the first major proponent of that view was Clement of Alexandria. He was the first prominent opponent of a literal millennium, at least on paper that we have, Clement of Alexandria. He said the thousand years is not to be interpreted literally, and he went on to to write about how it shouldn't be understood that way, but more allegorical. Allegorical means that there is a meaning that's not literal in the text. There's a meaning, we might say, hidden behind the text or somewhere else. So Origen uh, took this to a whole new level. That's what we say in Texas, a whole new level, a whole nother level. Augustine was influenced by the Alexandrian school of hermeneutics, especially with regard to the Old Testament prophecy. He just allegorized whatever he wanted. The jewels on the high priests, those symbolize Adam and Eve and the garden. And, and you start to see some interesting things that, that go all the way up through Augustine. Augustine picks up a lot. Even though Origen was declared a heretic during this time, his commentaries were widespread. He wrote more commentaries than just about anybody in church history. And uh, we don't even have them all today. Some have been lost. But his commentaries were the ones that you would pick up in the ancient church, especially the early church, if you wanted to study what the text meant. I'm not saying he got it right, but you didn't have a lot of choices. You didn't have, you know, the ESV study Bible, MacArthur study Bible, Reformation study Bible. You had Origen and maybe a few other scraps of stuff that you had picked up. So he was influenced by the Gnostic idea that physical beings were carnal and inferior to spiritual blessings. So Augustine did hold some of these views. He kept them over from his previous pre-conversion days. So there's John Walvoord. He said Augustine was the father of all millennialism. Even 
uh, most all millennialists would agree that he's the first one. Now, they would argue it's in the scriptures, but they would say he's the first one who synthesized it and started to put some of these ideas down on paper. He was the father of all millennialism because he discarded the allegorical system of interpretation of the Bible as a whole, as advanced by the school of Alexandria, in favor of limiting that to prophetic scriptures only. So Origen, Clement, everything's allegorical. Augustine said, no, just the prophetic passages, just the ones that speak about the future, which, hey, that's an improvement, right? If you're going from everything is allegorical and you can do what you want with the text to just the prophetic scriptures, at least there's some narrowing that has happened in this stream. He held other scriptures should be interpreted in their natural grammatical historical sense. With Augustine began general acceptance of the modern approach of recognizing the basic and normal interpretation of the scripture as literal and grammatical. And this is what the reformers would pick up. Now they, again, they followed Augustine and the prophetic scriptures being allegorical. And Calvin really struggled with how to handle revelation. But they always came back to literal and grammatical when it was something that was not prophetic. But at the same time, they held that prophecy is a special case requiring non-literal interpretation. All right, number three, sensual aversions. Sensual aversions. It's long been held, even up till today in the Roman Catholic Church and much uh, of the early church, that physical things are not as godly as spiritual things. And in a sense, we agree with that, right? The flesh is weak, the flesh, the flesh in the Bible, Paul talks about. But even the purified, future, glorified physical things can't be as good as the spiritual things many argue. So in addition to replacement theology and allegorical hermeneutic, opponents of the millennial view, especially by the 4th century, came to view the pre-mill position as a system motivated by Christians with the promise of future carnal enjoyments. Now, this is not without any reason. They saw some crazy folks, some cults, and, and cults like to not think that we're in the church age now. They like to think there's something coming soon and do everything you can to, you know, prepare for it, including wipe everybody out by suicide, wait for the UFOs. That was a few years ago, right? Was that Heaven's Gate? They're waiting for the UFOs to come back. And that was, I get, did they say God was coming on the UFO? I don't remember. But even the, the reformed guy that was on the radio um, a few years ago, and you gave all your money to buy billboards. What's that guy's name in California? Yeah, Harold Camping. And he was saying, you know, Christ was coming back at any moment. So that's that's usually, you know, if somebody's uh, pre-mill and they believe in the rapture, then they usually get lumped in with those guys or like um, John Hagee down the road here. Well, that's what was happening early on. Um, by the fourth century, you had some cults coming along and they were doing some crazy things. And now the same stuff will happen in the um, Reformation period. And they were of a premillennial stance. So people kind of got a bad taste in their mouth for that. And they said, you know, look, these guys, they're premillennial. They're living on the compound. They're sharing wives. This thing seems very carnal. So Keith Matheson, um, I believe he works for Ligonier, or at least he once did. He said early in his Christian life, Augustine had been attracted to millennialism, but he later rejected it. So he starts out premillennial. He rejected it later, it seems, largely due to some of the excessively carnal versions of the primo view that were current in his day. He changed his position, adopted instead a symbolic approach to the, 
20th chapter of Revelation. In his book, The City of God, he teaches that the first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20 is a spiritual resurrection, not a physical, he said. The regeneration of spiritual dead persons. And there's the citation there for the city of God, if you want to read that massive work. In contrast to pre-mill, he teaches that the second resurrection occurs at the second coming of Christ, not a thousand years later. All right, last one, medieval confirmation. So this, Augustine is the theologian of the Middle Ages. Even though he starts the Middle Ages, we could even argue he's a little before uh, the Middle Ages. His writings become the doctrinal position often by what we will see developed into the Roman Catholic Church. Now, they don't take his predestination view. They don't take his election and you know, all the good stuff. Um, but they do take a lot of his theology, and that becomes just standard practice. So during the Middle Ages, uh, armed with the replacement theology of the post-Nicene Christianity, armed with the Alexandrian allegorical hermeneutic and motivation by Augustine uh, of this sensualism, uh, they confirm it and it says because his theology, his eschatology became that eschatology of the Middle Ages, he's often called the father of all millennialism. This is Millard Erickson. Uh, the first, he has a big systematic theology. I'm not sure what his, what his end time view was in that. I got tired of reading it. It's so much philosophy. People loved Erickson. I tried to read it, got tired of it, and sold my copy. The first three centuries of the church were probably dominated by what we would today call premillennialism. But in the fourth century, an African Donatist named Tychonius propounded a competitive view. Although Augustine was an arch opponent of the Donatists, he did adopt that guy's view, Tychonius, uh, of the view of the millennium. This interpretation was to dominate eschatological thinking throughout the Middle Ages. William Masseling says, from the time of Augustine up to the Reformation, uh, Chileism had little influence on the Christian church. Uh, Keith Matheson, which he's either all-mill or post-mill, I can't recall, he says the Middle Ages were not a time of dramatic eschatological development, a modified Augustinian view. So they just took Augustine's view of the end times and then tweaked it here and there, closely linked with the Roman Catholic Church uh, as the kingdom of God became the predominant position. So here's just what we've talked about here as we see this develop. You know, the all-mill theologian might object to some of these titles, but as far as what was said and who said it and the quotes, there's no controversy. I mean, they, they said these things. They developed these arguments. So you just see this developing. And by the Middle Ages, that's pretty much set. Whatever Augustine said on the end times becomes the official Roman Catholic view. All they do is say the kingdom of God actually has to do with the Roman Catholic Church. It's not just now, but it's now within the Roman Catholic Church. And so they began to say, look, you can't even be in the kingdom of God unless you're a Roman Catholic They'll use that to argue against the Reformers in the 1500s. The Reformation. So now let's fast forward to that as we finish out this section. Luther, Calvin, they had a lot to work on. They had a lot to do. They're not going to spend a lot of time on end views when your whole world believes in a false gospel. That's not the first thing you focus on, right? If you go to a new country, they've never heard the gospel. As a missionary, you don't write your first book on why you should be a premillennialist. You might get around to that. But you started off with the gospel. The, the two main things the reformers wanted to see change is the presentation of the gospel. Because the Catholic Church didn't even have that. They didn't preach the word. And true biblical worship. There's where the focus was for the reformers. Gospel and worship, how the church is structured, all of that. 
needed to be reworked because it had been twisted by the medieval scholastics and, and Catholics. So they made some slight changes based on the circumstances of the Reformation, but they didn't abandon Augustinian eschatology. They accepted it, embraced it. So again, back to Keith Matheson. Despite his apocalyptic tendencies, uh, so Luther was often you know, considering the end times, thinking that it was near. He agreed with the common Catholic rejection of Kiliism. That's the pre-mill view. So he, he rejected that. There were, however, several important developments in Luther's thought which differentiated it from the official Catholic doctrine. So here's how Luther changed it. He identified the institution of the papacy as the Antichrist. So the Catholics are saying, we're the kingdom of God. And Luther turns around and says, actually, your leader is the Antichrist. That's the one mentioned in Revelation. Whoever the Pope is at the time is the Antichrist. And I would even uh, agree in a sense, a little a Antichrist, like John says in 1 John, there are many Antichrists who are to come. Uh, Secondly, he interpreted the book of Revelation as a prophecy of the entire history of the church. Thirdly, he believed that the millennium was fulfilled in the early history of the church and ended either with the rise of the Turks, that's around the 600s, we looked at the rise of Islam, or with the institution of the papacy, which will depend on who you consider the first official pope. I would put that around 500. So five to 600, uh, Luther thought this uh, more symbolic millennium had ended. So in addition to the influence of medieval history, the reformers also distanced themselves from the premillennial view So here we are again, moving away from it, not necessarily because of scriptural arguments, but there were some revolutionaries, and guess what they were? They were more of a pre-mill. In fact, the peasant revolt and many other revolts in Germany and some of the states around Germany had to do with men marching into a town with their army, taking over, taking all the women as their harem and multiple wives, and one guy even declared he was the Christ that had returned to save the world. He changed the name of the town into the New Jerusalem. And eventually the king sent his army in, or the prince sent his army in, and just wiped them all out because they were rebels. They had taken over a city and held it captive. So that kind of thing leaves a bad taste in people's mouth. It's bad publicity for the pre-mill view. Not to say that what they believe is necessarily the same as what we might believe here, right? It's We certainly don't teach that Jesus is going to come to Bernie, take over the city, and have 20 wives. I mean, that's what the guy did in that revolt. Also, Luther, uh, you can read his writings on anti-Semitism. There's a great lecture series they did at Masters by um, Carl Truman. He came there and visited for a winterum. And I think it's 20 lectures. And the last two, I think he addresses Luther's anti-Semitism. And that's one of the best set of lectures, I think, because he doesn't shy away from it. He loves Luther. He's written all these books on Luther and taught on Luther. But at the same time, he just admits, look, Luther hated the Jews severely. Um, Also, people misrepresent different views, even today. And there was a big misrepresentation of premillennialism. And when it comes to Calvin, he was just very inconsistent. I mean, you can read his commentaries, which I do as I'm preaching through books of the Bible. And he'll take one passage, very literal, and then the very next one, you know, he'll say it's it's symbolic or he'll take an allegorical approach. So we need to try to be consistent with our approach to Scripture. If the text says that it is 
telling a story or that it's not meant to be taken literal. There's hints right about it. Then fine. We we take it as the text tells us. That's not what I'm saying with Calvin. Um, he was picking and choosing based on his own thoughts, not necessarily on what the text said. All right. I would ask for questions, but I don't want it to become a uh, end times discussion for too long. All right. The great schism. The great here's here's fighting right here. The whole church split in two. Now there was one church, at least in the West, up until 1054, and even in the East. You know, there there's some cults that go to Asia. There's there's some uh, Nestorians who go east. There's some people that have broken off. But for the majority, East and West, what was once the Roman Empire, was one Catholic church. What's the word Catholic mean? Universal. One Catholic church. Does not mean Roman Catholic. Now, the West develops more Roman, and the East develops more Constantinople, or we'll just say Orthodox is what they call it. But in general, if you lived in 999, you would just say, I'm a Catholic Christian who lives in the West, so I go to Rome with my questions in theology and official things that I need to have approved. So the Eastern and Western Church had experienced tension, obviously. The Pope wants his power. The guy in Constantinople, the Patriarch, wants his power. And other major cities want their power as well. It becomes political. And they had been distancing for some time. Now, this is obvious when you speak a different language. It's very hard to agree on every single thing when your words are different that you're using. And in the Greek, they can just say, hey, we speak what the apostles spoke. Well, the language had changed by this time, and it's quite different. Words change in meaning over time. That's why new dictionaries have to come out. Although these days, they change the meaning of the word in the dictionary before it actually has been changed in society. But uh, that's a different topic. So in the East, they spoke Greek. The West spoke Latin. So that's a, a big issue. Also, there had been theological disputes. There's fighting between... Uh, different theologians as far as theology goes. The papacy, that's in Rome, achieved an unprecedented level of freedom from secular control. There is no emperor in the West. The Pope can pretty much do what he wants. He takes land. He builds his own little kingdom. And all he's got to deal with is these kings around him who might want to come in and invade and take his property, take his money, take his wealth. But he is not like the patriarch in Constantinople who has to obey the emperor and is constantly under watch from the imperial government there in Constantinople. In 1054, tensions reached their height between the Pope, Leo IX, and the patriarch, Michael Cerulius of Constantinople. So these guys were sort of fed up with each other and they were ready to go to theological war, battle, however you want to put it. Now let's talk a little bit about the difference in that. In the East, that's the Byzantine Empire. That's how we call it today. It's really just the Eastern Roman Empire that continued after the West fell. But we refer to it as the Byzantine Empire just for ease of discussion. And Christianity within the medieval West differed on a number of issues. So here's the things that they differed about. Is this something to divide about? The use of leaven versus unleavened bread. Now the Mass, yeah, they shouldn't even be doing the Mass, but they divided over that. Now, to them, it was a big deal. And sometimes I still get this question today. You know, why do we use, what do we use here? Leaven bread. Why do we use leaven bread? 
And I, you know, often this is a person who doesn't believe we should use alcohol. And I say, well, why don't we use wine? You know, we have a fun little talk. But um, it's not commanded to use unleavened bread in Scripture. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians uses a term that to the Gentiles would have clearly meant whatever bread they were eating. And they didn't eat unleavened bread. They ate leavened bread. That's in 1 Corinthians. Anyway, back to the division here. Number two, the acceptance of married priests. So this is a big deal because in the West, they're saying, well, you know, if you become a priest when you're married, you have to put your wife away. But if you become a priest early, you shouldn't even get married. The East didn't have such a problem with marriage. I think even today, maybe the Orthodox priest can be married. They said, we don't see that in the Bible. And of course, papal authority. The Pope said, I'm in charge of the whole Christian world. And the patriarch in Constantinople said, I object. I don't have to obey you. And then number four, this is what, it's off, the schism's often remembered because of this, the question of the correct wording for the Nicene Creed regarding a specific clause, filio quae. So we'll talk about filio quae. Basically, it's one little phrase. The East said that shouldn't be there, and we have the real, like, Nicaea's right down the road. We have Greek language. The Nicene Creed was wit- written in Greek. Why do you people, Latin speakers in the West, trying to add something later? To me, that's not the big debate. The big debate is whether this little phrase or clause is biblical or not. Because creeds, you can add it in later. and just I guess you have to call it something other than Nicene Creed, though. So what is it? Here it is in Greek. There it is in Latin. So in Latin, the filioque, the name of it comes from the Latin word, filioque, which I have underlined. And in Greek, right above it, this is out of the the Nicene Creed that they were using at this time in the West. The Greek said, of the Son, and of the Son. So here it is in English. Who proceeds from the Father and the Son, or and of the Son. Talking about the Holy Spirit. Who sends the Spirit? The early Nicene Creed probably just read from the Father. The West, somebody along the way, I think, said, well, he also comes from the Son. That's in the Bible, so we'll add that phrase in. The East said, how dare you? You know, this is the Nicene Creed. You can't do that. This is a big issue. This became the actual issue they divided over at the end, but other tensions were pushing that. So the Pope says, go. He sends his delegates to go to Constantinople. And he demands that Cerulius, the patriarch, recognize the Church of Rome as the head of all the churches. He's not going to like that, right? How would you like that if somebody just showed up here? Let's say the liberal Lutheran church down the road comes down here and says they're over us. We're not going to like that very much. And so Cerulius, he refused that. As a result, the cardinal who was there, the leader of the group of guys who came from Rome, said, you're excommunicated. You're no longer part of the one true church. In turn, then, what is a good patriarch going to do but excommunicate all the people from Rome, all the delegates who are there? So they're just, you know, excommunicating each other across the room. At the time, people just sort of shrugged their shoulders and they went on. No big deal. Nonetheless, in excommunicating each other, now the Pope and the patriarch of Constantinople had further separated that. So it's not just a simple shouting match in a room. It becomes a separation of two parts of the empire and the churches that existed at the time. So when Western crusaders later came and besieged and they sacked Constantinople in 1204, that becomes a big deal to the average person. If you're living in Constantinople, you're, you know, you're just a shoemaker, 
a barrel maker, whatever. Okay, the Western church doesn't like us. Big deal. Then here comes these Western Christians and they sack our city and take everything and rule over it for a while and they kill our people and take our women. Okay, now the schism is a big deal. Still, there were attempts to reunify. Even in 1274, they had a council in Lyon, France. 1439, a council in Florence. These were councils for other issues, but they brought up this topic of reunifying, particularly in the West, because the West wants to gain what what they think they lost in the East, the Eastern Church. Then in 1453, Constantinople will fall to the Muslim Turks, and there's no need to reunify then because the Muslims reign over that. What little Christianity there is at that time is suppressed. Now in modern times, this has come back up. They often have lots of photo ops. You'll see pictures in the media, how they're trying to reunify the East and West. And sometimes you'll even have Muslims in there and Jews and sort of this one world religion. So there's a lot of talk today about that. While we're on the subject and have a few minutes, let's just look at today's Eastern Orthodoxy. So we've looked at um, Islam. We'll look today at Eastern Orthodoxy. And we'll be looking over the next few weeks at the Roman Catholic theology. The East split off. They already had some different views. Those continue to develop until we have what we call today Eastern Orthodoxy. Sometimes it's called Greek Orthodoxy. Sometimes Russian. Depends on where you're from. Uh, But in general, they have things they all agree on. So four distinctive emphases in Eastern Orthodoxy. In the West, there's an emphasis on sin, grace, justification, salvation, and the sacraments. So this sounds familiar to us, even though we're not Roman Catholic, because the Protestant Reformation came out of the Western Church. And so these things were more clearly defined biblically at the Reformation. In the East, though, the emphasis has been on other things. Mystery is a big part of the Eastern religion. There's a lot of mystery. Apotheticism, an emphasis on negative theology. Meaning you can't really say anything positive about what we know. You can only say things that we don't know. It's all a mystery. And we do some of this even in Reformed theology. We say, you know, God cannot sin. Well, that's a negative statement, right? It's not a positive statement. Not negative and bad. We're just saying what we don't know, right? God is immaterial. He's without material doesn't actually say what he is. He is spirit, but to say he's immaterial. So there's different things we use in theology. But in their belief, pretty much the whole of Christianity, salvation, is just one big mystery. Not in the way Paul used it. Paul said it was a mystery. The gospel was a mystery because it was hidden in ages past and then revealed. They say it's still a mystery. And so don't focus too much on trying to understand what you believe and what the gospel is and what the Bible teaches. The focus isn't on theology, but it's more um, the mystery and celebrating that mystery. And so the Western church is always trying too hard to understand the problem, answer the questions. The Eastern church first to maintain the mystery and worship God as a result. Also, tradition is huge in uh, both Western and Eastern churches, but in the Western church, the Reformation eventually questions the emphasis on tradition. It checks that The Catholics have to defend it. In the East, there's never been a real big check placed on tradition. So in the East, tradition is considered the witness of the Spirit. So the Eastern Church believes the Spirit inspired the first seven councils. 
such that the miracle of Pentecost occurred again at each of those councils. So we've covered the first seven councils of the church. They hold these as clear and true and inspired doctrine because the Spirit came down and there was like Pentecost all over again. So the ecumenical councils are considered to be on par with Scripture. Now the Roman Catholics will elevate the Pope's traditions and what he says equal to Scripture. The Eastern Church, though, says the ecumenical councils are equal with Scripture. To change them, this is why they got so mad about adding that filial quay clause, to change them is viewed with the same concern as changing Scripture. Just like you'd get upset if somebody was saying, there's additional books of the Bible that we found today. They got very upset about that change. And they say there's no such thing as sola scriptura or a closed canon because God continues to speak through the church. Isn't that interesting that, yeah, the, the councils don't change them, but yeah, God continues to speak through the church today. And there is no closed canon there is no scripture alone. You've got to take in tradition. And even if you try to make an argument theologically, it could still just end up being called a mystery. And, and sometimes Protestants are guilty of this. You know, I don't want to talk about election. That's just a mystery that's, that God and his own prerogative has. I really don't think it's our job to study election or predestination or who Christ died for. Well, that's true. If the Bible doesn't say anything about it, then... Leave it to God. If the Bible says something about it, and we're called to study the Bible, then we study those doctrines. And that's not an emphasis in the Eastern Church. I probably should stop there. We'll just cover this slide. Number three, theosis. This is a Greek term referring to deification, and it's really the summary of Eastern Orthodox understanding of salvation. You're saved by becoming like God, being changed into your God-like state. That's my wording, not theirs. But that's what deification is. The concept is often expressed more strongly than this. God became man so that man might become God. That's how they say it. God became man so that man might become God. It's not the little God thing, theology of the heretics, but it is not good that they say that's the goal of salvation. So we'll pick up on this next week and get into the rest of the medieval time in next week's class. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you that we can study these things, talk about them, learn from them. Let this make us a more godly people desiring to learn from the things you've done in history and especially in your word. Amen.